Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Vanessa LaRose. She grew up in Scientology, and last week we started our conversation where she talked about how her parents met and got involved in Scientology and how she was raised in it and what some of her childhood was like. It was very interesting and I am so happy that you'll be able to hear the continuation of our conversation today. What is so interesting about what she covers today is about how children in Scientology are treated like little adults and how you feel while you're in it like you live in a secret world there and when you leave you can feel like you just landed on earth and you feel ill-equipped and kind of out of place and overwhelmed by the world around you. Vanessa also talks about so many of the important things she's now learning in school, and I'm very excited for her and this new chapter in her life. I'm also looking forward to all of the Patreon subscribers being able to hear her exclusive third interview with some very powerful new information and emotional moments. If you'd like to hear her, go to patreon.com indoctrination and become a subscriber and you'll hear it as soon as it's available. Here's Vanessa now. From this point on, why don't you just, you can take us through the important parts of the chronology, but also leading up to your relationship. I think I would love to be able to cover your relationships with your family, your relationships sort of in general, how you create those in your life now in a healthy way and also what you're getting out of being in school and what you're learning and and the insights that it's giving you. Okay. Um so after so I went to Delphi and I think in about the age I was 15 was when things started getting real. <laughs> and also just like, you know, you're treated this is something that really upsets me after learning about developmental psychology. Um, you are treated like an old, very old soul in a tiny body. And so you are treated like an adult from the moment you can talk, basically. Um, and to do that to a child takes a lot of their childhood away when you force a child to become an adult so quickly. And so by the time I was 15, I mean, I thought I was ancient. <laughs> I thought I was a full-blown adult. And I had talked my dad into letting me go to public school, actually, finally. And I tried that. And it was very sweet. He rented an apartment in the school district that I wanted to go to school in. And uh, I got there. It was pretty overwhelming, honestly. <laughs> I had never been in any kind of situation like that. And another Scientologist kid who she had actually just come out of the Sea Org, she was 16. She decided to go with me. So she was a year older than me. And I think she got caught for um, truancy or something. And they ended up finding out that her transcripts didn't transfer to public school from our Scientology school. And they told her she would have to start all over. So they said, you know, it's going to be the same thing with you. Do you want to start all over? And both of us just said, Meh, let's get our GEDs. Um, and the family on the outside, because none of the rest of my family is Scientologists, um, have always been very like, they were always very concerned, my grandparents, when they were around. And 
I always knew I had to present to them. You know, like I, I always knew that we were different and odd and we lived in this secret world. But when we went over here, we had to like be normal <laughs> and all of these things. And so um, my grandparents were kind of starting to freak out a little bit about like, what is she doing? She's 16 years old. She's out of school. I think it was 15, actually. Um, and so somehow the solution came up. I had my father at this point had moved to Clearwater with his company. Oh, wow. Um, when I was 15, they moved, they moved him out there. Um, and I tried to go there and live there with him for a little while. Um, and it was just such a small town and it was all just, uh, just Scientologists I was hanging out with, obviously. It was a little, I felt boring after coming from LA. And so uh, basically they wanted us, they wanted me to be doing something that real kids do. <laughs> and we came up with the solution that would appease my family, which was I would go to Hubbard College of Administration. And uh, I was told that they had accreditation, which they do, but I didn't understand the difference between different types of accreditation. <laughs> like they are not accredited the way that um, a state university is accredited. Um, but it was good enough to the point where we could show the family, hey, I'm in college, I'm at an accredited college, all of this. Unfortunately, I uh, signed up for a student loan at that point to the tune of like $20,000 um, for Hubbard College. Uh, they have a degree program where you get an associate's degree in business management. And so I did that for about a year and a half. Um, they told me I would have internships in any field I wanted because I was like, I don't know if I want to do business. They said, you can use this in any field. So we'll set you up at internships all over at veterinary offices, at all these different things. And um, it was all just like Scientology companies that were boring pretty much the internships. And I was actually having a really hard time completing the degree because there were policies in there that he was giving us advice from the 1950s. And I was not, I couldn't let being told that I had misunderstood words <laughs> be there. Like that wasn't fine with me. I was like, this is ab absolutely ridiculous. The way you were supposed to pay bills and things that are just his opinion. And they were being taught as fact. And so I ended up leaving that program before I got my um, degree and going to work full-time at Scientology companies. Um, and I ended up working at a small field group where um, it's not a main entity of the church, but it's like an offshoot where they feed people mm -hmm. into the church. Mm -hmm. um, we, we worked with like auto mechanics and getting them onto the bridge. So I hope I wasn't a flirty fisher <laughs> without knowing, but I was definitely one of those people out there selling books all the time and mm -hmm. um, grading the OCA tests and going over the results of them and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, I worked for, and throughout all of this, you know, I had been getting auditing, which my, I was always pretty honest with my dad about feeling pretty depressed, but depressed wasn't a word I used, but the depression really like kicked in around age 10. <laughs> and we were constantly trying to figure out ways to remedy it. And the only way you remedy it is Scientology. So 
my dad actually worked his butt off to be able to afford a private Scientology counselor who I worked with for many years, um, who was a very sweet woman. Uh, but looking back, I really wish that somebody would have, maybe when I was 15, 16, 17, instead of encouraging these wild fantasies I had, like driven by my hormones and acknowledging that they were real and uh through these auditing sessions, I wish they would have had talks with me about like narcissistic men or how to choose healthy relationships or things like that instead of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, um, cause my dad really thought he was doing the right thing by getting me all that counseling. Um, and then I hit a point where I was working for a Scientology company and I was going to go, I was already in debt, unfortunately, cause the student loan needed to be paid back from Hubbard college. And I was working full time and, um, my dad had been working for this company, this Scientology company where they sell rugs. A lot of people do this and they make good money, I guess, to pay for their bridge. So he had said, come with me and travel. Um, and I said, okay. So I quit my job and then it fell through. So I had no job <laughs> and I was about to turn 21. Um, and I thought, what can I do to make the amount of money I need to do? I was already on my own. I, you know, I had these bills, I had dogs, so I had to have a place with the yard. And and so I worked with an auditor and I said, hey, I think it's probably a good idea if I become a bartender. Like I can make a lot of cash. And and she said, no, I'm not going to help anybody with their stuff if they just want to be a bartender. Like that's not really doing anything to save the world. And (laughs) uh, so I thought, okay, that was a little weird. And, um, so that had stuck with me. And then right around that time, I had lost a friend. So they kind of pulled me back in through mm-hmm. this death and getting the counseling. And so I was kind of still in. And then I started going into bartending and actually being able to have my money to support myself and things like that. And the doors opened a little bit wider. So, yeah, so I understand this idea conceptually of of uh, this person not wanting to help you do something that's not helping the world, but also how is selling rugs helping the world, right? <laughs> so, right? Not that there's anything wrong with selling rugs. Yeah. People made rugs, and it's a, yeah. and I'm sure it's a, it's a good business, but people don't do it, I think, to to save the world. Uh, but somehow there was something about you doing this job or or bartending and being able to make a living and also do something I think on your own terms, something that was independent. And uh, because I think there are a lot of bartenders while they are working for companies still, they, they can get tips and they can just sort of, they can find a way to make the living that they want to be able to make. That's very interesting. And the same woman wouldn't help her own grandchild to, to become a, her dream was to become a a musician, a rock star. And she said the same thing to her. I'm not going to help you. That's not going to help save the planet like you know so that just shows how silly it is well I mean it also to me shows and this is true I guess of therapy in general and almost anything that there there isn't this kind of um uniformity and uh you infuse or it gets infused when you're getting help from someone or auditing or advice their own biases find their way in and so it's no longer this sort of perfect system. I mean, I think as soon as you have humans involved in anything, you're going 
you're going to get that kind of bias. And that's just sort of natural. But clearly she had things that she thought were good ideas and things that she thought were bad ideas. But it, it was about how she felt about it, not what was best, I think, ultimately for you. Um, I do want to make sure to go back to you saying that you were depressed from the age of 10 um, and that you went for auditing. And did any of it ever help or did you just find a way to distract yourself from the depression? And also what what was the depression like? How did you know that something was off? Um, as far as the question of did auditing seem to help, it seemed to help because nobody had ever cared so much to ask me questions that, um, you know, or, and the woman who was doing it, I really looked up to her and I thought she was really awesome. So when you're telling your story, just like how in therapy, you know, you're telling something and somebody says, I care you, I got that. It's cathartic regardless. Um, it is interesting. Now they think that it was her fault that I'm like, that she messed me up or something. She didn't apply the tech properly and she mm. made a mess of my folders and this and that. And she's a great woman, you know, and like tried as hard as she could to be by the book Ellen Hubbard. So it's never the tech that's the problem. It's always like the person applying it or this oh, or that, right. which is yeah. really unfortunate. Um, and my parents to this day, I think they think that she, her bad auditing is what made me feel like how I did today, which is really interesting. But um, with the depression, um, now that I have words to describe it, I mean, it was just not getting the types of joy. Like, I think at a young age, I started with my grandma's death. It just got really dark and not being able to process or grieve that really, or um, the only therapy I had with Scientology therapy where you know it's not uh very helpful <laughs> in mm -hmm. in situations like that and um so I don't know it just kind of persisted and I think I was always um knew that I was a little bit more like unhappy or not getting as much joy as other people like is this not working on me or I you know that kind of stuff um depression that is really what drew me into therapy uh in the end is just mm -hmm. that overwhelming um you know biological response to everything that had been happening and not just emotional but my body would not work anymore you know and the weeping all of the time like mm -hmm. there's certain things that you start noticing about your body that you can't even control any longer when you repress things for so so long you know mm -hmm. and so the weeping all of the time just you know when when people talk about feeling depressed just waking up in the morning and just having that dull thud that just uh that you just are not happy about really anything and not looking forward to your day at all and everything feels overwhelming so i don't know how you did it because you were, you know, you, you've always been so busy and working hard and rescuing animals and doing a lot of the things that you do. And how did you find the energy? How did you just make it through the day? Um, well, when you're one of your core beliefs is based on that your value is how productive you are, <laughs> which is a Scientology kind of core belief that productivity is really important. Um, that was never an area that I kind of like 
thought I could drop, you know, I mean, it's always been just me. And so if I don't do it, then what, you know, what would happen if I didn't was a lot scarier than having to do everything. Um, but I've also been told like by, by, uh, therapists and things that there's things called uh highly functioning depressive and once I like realized that I was like oh that's me for sure um and you know um after leaving I think the anxiety got a lot worse I think going through the process of leaving I noticed I had little OCD tendencies too like which I didn't even know what the definition of OCD was at the time. I just noticed I was doing my ritual, checking the locks, and I started to become really paranoid about um, losing anything that meant anything to me, like mostly my pets, you know, and like all things like that. And in nature, a lot of things came out after my parents disconnected. You know, when you go through traumas, (laughs) that's what can trigger um, mental health issues. And so that was like kind of a final trauma that then I had to deal through all that stuff. But it was almost like it was better living in the delusion for my mental health to some degree. <laughs> but then go through the snowball and then later on. It right. Okay. <laughs> right. I'll, exactly. Now, you, you're not able to this day to be in contact with them or let them know what you're doing or that you're studying psychology or that you're in therapy. I mean, how how much of a division of information and contact is there? Um, a hundred percent division. Neither of them will talk to me. Uh, my mom, I still try to text her. I text her on her birthday, but she won't speak to me whatsoever. Uh, she knows I'm studying psychology because we actually, we had disconnected about four years ago. And then when we got back in touch and she had found out that I was studying psychology. And so it was kind of cool because at least I had a little bit of knowledge and information. I had taken stress management classes and I had worked with a therapist. And so at least now I kind of knew like where she was coming from. I had both sides of it, you know? And so um, she didn't like that I was studying psychology, obviously. Um, so she doesn't know anything for the last two years. And then my dad, uh, he sent me a letter three years ago after all the email exchanges. and. Uh, said the door's wide open if I ever want to rejoin, but he would prefer if we led separate lives. <laughs> and so it's been a little bit of a challenge just getting through, you know, believing that I didn't, there's nothing that I did that was so terribly wrong. And, you know, because the parents' mm-hmm. love should be unconditional, hopefully. Right. So that's right. been a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, Yeah. I mean, even just that message that the door is open, typically the way that sentence ends is um, to come back into my life and the door is open and, you know, anytime come on by, but it was the door is open for you to come back to Scientology. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I was really clever. Like, I think I even asked you a few times, like, how can I word these things so that like, and I even tried, I tried to talk to my dad through the music, the language of music, and I was sending him music videos and okay, this is, you know, like, how do we do this? And right, connect. Yeah. It just wasn't working. And um, honestly, like, as horrible as it's been, it's also kind of gratifying to know that like, what I thought, like, 
that they would choose the church over me was actually true. Because it's something that I've always known and my mom has kind of tried to deny or whatever, but it's it's just the truth. And so to see that, it almost like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, so it's a lot of things because it's going to be uh, validating. Uh, yes, and affirming about what you were assuming was the case. And now you know it to be the case. Uh, but it's not without its great amount of hurt and loss. and. The, the idea also of it just, I mean, in my mind, it, it just seems so unfair to have that imposed on family systems in this way, um, because I think nothing should get in the way. No belief system, no organization, nothing. But and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, that they are still adhering to those rules and then can't open that space to you again and that in order for you to be able to live the life that feels right for you or authentically you you've had to forfeit then having a relationship with your parents it's very very difficult I think people don't realize how difficult that is and so then so when you were talking about getting a job and you know and then eventually going to school so what prompted you wanting to go to school go to college honestly I'm um I've been doing like trades since I was about 15 and all of that is very, uh, or the trades that I were in are very physical. And with the depression that was going on and all of these things, I was trying to worry about how am I going to make money? And I was having, um, when bartending, I was actually getting really weird kind of like uh, anxiety because I felt trapped. And for those eight hours or however long, any person could come and see me or my boundaries couldn't be up. And I was vomiting before all of my shifts and during my shifts. And I just realized like, okay, I cannot, this is not good for me anymore. And so I kind of drew it back a little and I did um, other trades and stuff like that. And honestly, I just kind of have been so fascinated in psychology because it's, um, it's like all the stuff I wanted to learn from Scientology, you know, and like always had these questions. And I was always really into reading the tech when I was younger. I'm, I remember sneaking downstairs and taking books off the shelf and like reading um, even books that were out of print, like Have You Lived Before This Life? Or um, Mary Sue Hubbard had written a book called Hats of a Wife. And I remember like studying all of these things. And I just always found it so interesting personally. So then to um learn the actual scientific stuff is like awesome and incredible and I also prompted myself to start school purely because I signed up for a stress management class and I was starting to have panic attacks and so I kind of needed that and I also at the time was having a quite a few people around me who were going through similar situations, having wanting to talk to somebody and me being um, trained as an auditor when I was younger. um, I wanted to be somebody who could listen and who could know how to genuinely listen and how to be there for somebody. And like, sometimes you don't need advice. You need to talk and hear your story and have somebody be there with you. And I wanted to learn how to do that properly. And like, uh, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it sounds to me, it's really profound that you were saying that it's giving you a chance to learn all the things that you had wanted or thought you were going to learn in Scientology and also the things that have a practical application also in the world outside. And you, and I think a number of other people uh, have gotten involved in a psychology course, sometimes for their own healing and understanding what happened to them, putting it into words, and then being able to help others going through something similar. So there's, there's a whole therapeutic process for a lot of people who are in programs like that. And I'm glad that it's been that way for you. And so I'm sure there are some things where you've learned them and, and it's been so liberating to have the words. And I bet there are also times that you've learned things where it could have made you very upset uh, because the way you were interacted with was so different or seemingly now so wrong. And so I'm wondering if there's those pits, like the pieces of information that really are staying with you because they're so impactful or because they're helping you really see why maybe you were, you know, um, having such panic attacks or why you were having depression, even though I do think that it is part of wiring and not having it be diagnosed or treated over a long stretch of time. So, so yeah, teach us about what you're getting from your programs. Um, well, first of all, just going to be a part of a community that's a big enough organization that it's very interesting. It's like it's um, having, it gives me a little bit of faith in the structure of things again, right? So like any structure is not going to be like Scientology, right? So it's very refreshing to come into this democratic campus and have there be a student body where people vote. And if people get in trouble, they're fired or they're this. And it's not Scientology, right? So seeing that there are these groups and seeing that the state of California wants us to be educated, like I'm really grateful for that. And I'm really grateful for all of the professors who have taken the time to like assign these incredible assignments in these site classes that really like help people go through um, and reconcile their life. I mean, I feel like going and doing all the, I've taken almost every single psych class I can, but doing all of these have been so therapeutic. And I really looked at it as this is part of my healing journey. And hopefully one day I can use it to help somebody else. But like also getting my own goodness out of it has really helped. Um, I'm, I love social psychology and learning how the group form yeah. you know work and it's sure. so fascinating and yeah. when he gave us uh our three week long cults I just kind of sat there <laughs> quietly and like we watched all these documentaries and it was fascinating um things that have really helped me too is like International Cultic Studies Association um I have gone to a lot of their workshops and listened to people who have come from other cults and you realize that either your experiences are not that dissimilar. You don't have to be alone. You know, a lot of people are dealing with mm -hmm. life without their families and things like that and feeling segregated, feeling isolated from the world. Um, that has been awesome reading. I've been reading nonstop. I read about 
uh, Margaret Singer's research, which is mm-hmm. freaking incredible. Things that have stuck out to me big time is Seligman's learned helplessness theory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which has been huge. And do you want me to explain that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I I remember t- talking to Chris Shelton about this on a video about learned helplessness and um, but yes, please please tell people about Seligman and what what the study is about and what the conclusions are. Okay, and just in short, he was a researcher who back in the day was doing a research on dogs, dogs which I hate because you know me, I'm a animal mm. advocate. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard it for me us- too. Yeah, it gave us really good research, and he learned that they were doing these experiments on dogs where the dogs who had gotten shocked and then allowed to get away, they would get away when they got the chance. The dogs that were receiving shocks that weren't let away, they they couldn't get away. They had to stay there and take it, right? And then when they lifted the gate to let them run away when they got shocked, they just sat there and got shocked even longer. And they had kind of lost their will to get up and go away and try things differently because the outcome had always been the same previously every time they tried. And that helped it, it just happens a lot in human beings as well. And it's this concept called learned helplessness. And it's something that um, I think really affects people who have been in cold uh, or high demand organizations. And the amount of times you say, I feel this way or I want this way, and you can't. Um, you kind of just give up trying. And I feel like with me, I felt that expressing myself is like, (laughs) I just kind of gave up after a while because you're told it's not valid. And um, this is just talking with you right now is like a step for me in becoming not helpless, you know, learned optimism. And uh, there's a lot of research on learned optimism too. Um, which is really cool. And you can, you can uh, change that. And so going through a lot of these classes, I've realized how damaging uh, Sea Org recruitment is to a growing child. And I was recruited for the Sea Org very heavily. And I think that some of those ideas are still within me. And I like keep trying to get them out. And that's a really, that's a really cruel thing, I think, that they do to children. And what are the ideas that are still with you that you're trying to get out? Well, I mean, they basically paint this world as a prison planet, <laughs> you know, that this organization needs to save and they are recruiting you to be a part of that. They tell you, you know, um, many are called, few are chosen and you're this, you get this elitist idea that you can save the world and, and mm-hmm. what you have to do in order to do that is give up your ability to have kids because kids aren't allowed in the fjord, you know? So my always uh, answer to why I didn't want to join the fjord was because I wanted to have children. And so they would just tear that apart. Like, do you really want to have kids in a planet like this? Like, are you really gonna, uh, you know, that kind of stuff that, um, and then also just showing us massive amounts of conspiracy theories that like 12, 13, 14 years old, they would come and pick us up from school and drive us to Starbucks, and it seemed really cool, and play cool music, and like, all of these techniques, I mean, I'm just mad that nobody stood up for us, and let us be kids. Mm-hmm. And so when you were picked up and taken to Starbucks, 
that was to be able to impart information on you and share. So what were some of the conspiracy theories that were very popular? Um, there was this concept that like only a few men are controlling the world. It was very Illuminati. And that's kind of the idea and that um, J.P. Chase Morgan and a couple other people are in charge of everything and they're the main SPs. They're the ones that are putting psychs in the mainstream. Mm. Um, yeah, and so we got to fight the war on psychs. And that was a, a lot of what the recruitment was about, was fighting the war on psychs and mm-hmm. can't let them win. Um, I actually did end up signing the billion-year contract after years of being recruited. Um, and I got out of it because I happened to be dating L. Ron Hubbard's grandson at the time, and they didn't want to cause a flap with the family. And my mom also did stand up and say, she's 12 years old, she can't leave yet. And I felt like, oh, wow, my mom actually cares. Like, I remember that moment very well. I'm sure it stands didn't out. Just, didn't just hand me over. She said I had to be 16. <laughs> so she, like did me, she did me a favor there because a lot of my yeah. friends did join at that age. And they are still there. And I still drive by and see them. And this is 20 years later, mm-hmm. you know. And so dating L. Ron Hubbard's grandson gave you a pass. Yeah, in, in in that exact situation. In that run, right. Because we were together and we had signed together. And so they were like, all right, let's just not push it, you know. But my mom, she did get in trouble for uh, telling somebody to rip up the contract. Oh, okay. And when you get into trouble, what did that mean for her? Um, She wasn't allowed to do her course. She had to, uh, yeah. you know, um, do amends or something like that. It wasn't big trouble, but. Yeah, but it was some consequence. But what she was trying to do, and I think, you know, this is what happens a lot with peop- with with parents who leave a situation like this, that they think back on all the times that their intuition uh, got them into trouble. And there are times that they had a sense that something wasn't quite right, but then they couldn't say anything or they let themselves sort of talked, get talked out of it and not act on their own child's behalf. Just in the last few minutes, because, you know, we, I could talk to you for days about all of this. Um, and I do hope that we have a chance to talk again. Uh, but I, I remember uh, a story that you shared about being out in front of one of the um, centers or museums and picketing. Uh, so I'm remembering just bits and pieces of the details and you were with your father. Can you share that story? Just because obviously you're going to tell it more accurately than I'm remembering it. Sure. Um, yeah, it was a big deal in San Diego. There was some type of national conference of psychologists or psychiatrists and, we used to go out protesting all the time. It was kind of just what you did at the time. And we would go out with our church and they actually snapped a picture and ran it in the San Diego Times. I probably should show you the picture. It's me like holding a picket sign. I think it was four years old protesting uh, psychiatric drugs. And so for me to be studying psychology, is pretty great. And the, uh, scheme of things, but yeah. that's always been my dad's mission, and it's because of the evils that Ellen Hubbard paints 
psychology uh, to portray. He just basically anything ever bad that ever happened is because of the psych. You know, I'm sure you know he did send Dianetics to the board, American Board of Psychology. And when they wrote, he called them his colleagues. And when they wrote back to him that it was basically gibberish, that was when I believe the campaign started. So, mm-hmm. really, right. Yeah, and they they had certain diagnoses in the past for him, and I think he did something very clever, which can happen, and this happens um, sometimes in controlling relationships, also with gaslighting. When you can discredit the source of the information, then you discredit the information, and so saying that you know uh, all of these psychologists or psychiatrists are agents of of chaos, agents of chaos, right, right, it's like. So interesting. So here you were out there with your dad picketing, which, you know, a lot of people think about when they have parents who are involved in causes that they're out picketing for different causes. So this was a cause. This was a family cause. And now in retrospect, you understand it and you understand the reason for it. And you can also see how damaging it is to make people afraid of what could be the source of their health and being able to assuage some of their and treat some of their depression and anxiety and how much it delays or stops people from getting the help that they need. And I think the fact that you have cultivated this group, a group of people who are friends, who are from your past, who are from your present, you know, you're di- the different people you're meeting at school and also finding resources for yourself, finding therapy, finding medication, whatever you need, and also doing the good work that you do with fostering your adorable dogs. So I've, I've met some of them <laughs> um, and you take such good care of them. Uh, but I, I think that it's really important to be able to see how, what an empowered stance that is to address what you need and how to get the help with whatever it is that you need and also how to figure out whom to trust and who to allow into this circle. I mean, those are all things that you have to learn how to do. And sometimes it's trial and error, you know, um, and I, I know that we just have a few minutes left. So I was going to ask you a question, but there was there more or was there something else that you wanted to make sure just to mention before we finished up? I'm really passionate about animal assisted therapy and dog rescue. As you know, it has helped me immensely to volunteer with a cause that is near and dear to my heart and actually be able to see them making a difference. Um, I highly recommend that for anybody who has something like that. And also animal assisted therapy. I mean, for me, animals like got me through my childhood, you know, like having that friend and unconditional love from somewhere. So I highly recommend people try out some of that. Um, I wanted to say that the my I kind of put like my tips for leading. (laughs) Um, Oh, fantastic! That's a great way to end. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. um, Just to remember that language and words can. Uh, paint our reality. So us knowing an entire uh, dictionary of Scientology words (laughs) uh, 
some of those words have new meanings or different real meanings in the real world. And learning um, to change your vocabulary can help and not think in Scientological concepts anymore because uh, those don't exist in the real world. And it's really challenging at first to mm-hmm. set some of those words out. But when you don't think like that anymore, you can't um, argue with people in your head like that anymore, even because those words aren't, aren't your words anymore. And right. Right. Um, that has been a big helper for me. I like it. Very important. What the scientific method is and researching critical thinking has been huge for me um knowing what real research is and how to uh differentiate fact from fiction you know it's a really interesting time that we're in right now it was a really weird time for me to come out when fake news is now a thing and (laughs) i feel like think about that oh my god you're right it's a really interesting time with what's going on politically and also when you're being gaslighted a technique that I think people tend to do is they tend to ask other people around them what they think and gather information and it can be protective in that way if you don't trust yourself anymore to find out what people who you really trust think um but then after a while you get sick of other people's opinions and then you form your own and you know but um Anyway, understanding what real research is and how to access it, um, mm-hmm. how much scrutiny research has to go into to like actually be called research, and uh, that's been super important. Uh, Self care that you can't pour from an empty cup, that perfect doesn't exist. Like stop trying because perfection is really expected within Scientology. Um, I hope that people can do some research on boundaries that they can define and protect their boundaries because I, that was a totally new concept to me. Um, cults are made to have you not have boundaries. So when you learn about boundaries, it can be really uncomfortable at first, but um, if you can't protect your boundaries then you can't protect your safety. And that is a lesson that I've really had to learn. Um, baby steps. It's like peeling the onion. Like I, you know, I've been working on this for years and just now do I have the courage to talk to you and deal with whatever comes my way. But it's about the right timing for every individual. And you, I think us coming out of Scientology, we're innately so responsible. Like we have responsibility down. So we feel like a responsibility to speak. And I'm really glad that I'm speaking now instead of earlier when I was less and that's important too. Um, I want to remind people that there's a lot of us out there and you're not alone. No, definitely not. And there are a lot of people just like you though, who are afraid to come forward. So, so it's really good for people to know that there are many more people out there who are experiencing the exact same things. You just don't know it yet. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, also it was really when I came out, I really wanted to know, like, the way. Like, I thought there was, like, the answer to things. And I think that is how sometimes people get caught in group after group, is when they leave a cult, they can end up in another one because they want the answer. And for me, coming to terms with the fact that, like, 
the answer is usually somewhere in the middle ground. And like, there isn't always that solid way of, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this, and that's been really challenging and just like letting go of that search for just like finding what's the truth. I want to know the truth, you know, that caused me a lot of stress because it's not there. (laughs) And like, Uh really does usually lie somewhere in the middle ground. And, uh, this whole religion tends to extremify things. Mm. to bring mm-hmm. back the middle ground is like mm-hmm. been very important um also me teaching myself how to in essence be a therapist gave me the tools to look for what to look for in a therapist because after I met with you those first times you know I went to a therapist under my insurance well that guy was a uh, not great therapist for me and I mean he this was good I was uh, way out there he said that I was probably a child of ritual satanic abuse I mean you know there's what yeah there's people in every industry so just because like when you come out you want to think oh because they're a doctor they know well there's you know credentials matter but there's also numerous people in every field that are you know really interesting so like the majority of therapists are going to be great, but if you come across one that's a little weird, like, just leave, you know? Like, this wasn't really the experience I was looking for. Okay, cool. Like, you mm-hmm. know, so find out what you're looking for in a therapist and then go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, support groups have been super helpful. And uh, just, like, use your resources because... There's a lot of resources out here for people, especially who need mental health care or education, and I don't see people using them as much as they can, and that's been so so helpful for me. Wow. I love this list. I wrote everything down. I mean, I, I think it's so important that you also mention about um, not feeling alone and also being able to get the help that you need, and, and that, yes, if you are going to go uh, speak to someone who then loads you up with other issues like satanic ritual abuse, you know, thank you very much. Um, And also, or is avoiding talking about your cult experience just because that's not their comfort zone or that's not what they know or they might not believe you or whatever else. Don't waste your time. There are other people to go talk to. And if you don't know whom, then ask, you know, ask someone in the field who can guide you. There There are too few of us. So the more people who are, learning about psychology, who are then going to be able to be a resource, either part-time, full-time, or just talking to people on the phone who understand this. It's a wonderful thing. It's so necessary and it's so needed. There really is, um, there is a gap that needs to be filled with people who contact me from all over saying they couldn't find anyone in the Midwest or whatever, like huge swaths of areas. I don't know if that's true or not, but they really just, they couldn't find somebody. So it shouldn't be that way. And so, um, I'm really, I'm, I'm so happy to, to speak with you. And I think also you saying very specifically that when you come out and you feel like from Scientology, and this is true actually of other groups too, which is what you find out about when you go to support groups and things are kind of similar, even though the language is different. Um, and some of the beliefs are going to be different that you don't have to jump into doing something right away. You actually, part of your healing is addressing what you need and also what you need to wait on because it's going to be too much for you. And if you get 
overwhelmed or if you get negative responses from it, will you be able to tolerate that? And are you ready for that? And so knowing that you, once you've left a cultic group, have the freedom to check in with yourself and that there isn't a right timing or a wrong timing, it's your timing. And so by you contacting me, you're saying, okay, it's my, this is feeling right to me now. And that's what's so important being able to do. It's very empowering. I've listened to all these podcasts. I always wanted to chime in and be part of the conversation. Why am I still letting this organization control me? Like, what is it? And standing up to that and just, I am allowed to publicly speak. Like, this is a right in this country. It's what makes this country very different from other countries. So yeah. to have an organization on that for 32 years, I mean, it's like, it's a big deal for people to be able to, um, you know, express this publicly. Right. And I think it's a really good diagnostic tool when you're involved in something that doesn't adhere to your constitutional rights. That should be a, a warning sign right there. It, not to mention, I mean, they really do set themselves up early as the government. I mean, they have their own justice system. We almost like you follow the law, but only because like you kind of have to. But they're the justice system. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. I mean, I, I, I am sorry that things are the way they are with your parents. I, and, you know, it's, it's certainly a loss for you, but I also feel like it's their loss because they, they, they're not able to enjoy seeing how wonderful you're doing. And that's usually the source of a lot of parents' happiness and security about their children living a good life and taking good care of themselves and achieving good things and being capable and and they're keeping themselves from being able to see that their child is okay and even better um, and can struggle through her struggles and still be able to manage and do well and get stronger every day. And so I, I look forward to hopefully having another chance to, to talk to you and checking in with you and seeing how you're doing and good luck to you and in everything and I know you have a busy life so I hope that it's also that you you are now in going back to something you were talking about from age 10 and on I hope now you're getting to experience more joy I am when things are not so Alice in Wonderlandy anymore um, mm. you know it's ironic that they use that book so much because that is how it feels sometimes especially right. when leaving um, and things have calmed down a lot, and it's not as scary as it once was. So thank you for that. And I love my parents. I really, really hope that they are able to speak to me again and other friends who I've lost, you know. I really hope so, but we shall see. We shall see. Fingers crossed. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. One more thing before you go. I want to go back to something that Vanessa said that I have to say really affected me. I have known Vanessa a long time now, and she has always struck me as someone who feels deeply and is also very strong and independent and kind and giving and forgiving and smart. But what I didn't know and was surprised by was when she said the following, that she started feeling depressed at the age of 10. Sometimes people say things and they go right to your heart. And this was one of those times. And so today I want to talk 
about depression. So here are some of the signs. If you have not just sadness, but persistent sadness, not just the kind of feeling of feeling blue every so often, that's pretty typical for all human beings to have every once in a while. But if it persists and lasts for a long stretch of time, and no matter how happy things are in your life, you can seem to snap out of it, take note. And also self-loathing. If you're starting to feel that you don't like yourself and you don't trust yourself and you don't like your life and there's something wrong with you or unlikable about you or unlovable about you, also take note. Pay attention if you have a loss of interest in activities that you used to like to do, a loss of energy, a loss of libido, a loss of motivation, a loss of feeling hopeful and a loss of the ability to focus at times. And sometimes there can be a change in appetite and sleeping patterns. Notice if you're experiencing insomnia and if you're getting up a lot during the night and you didn't before. And if you're sleeping many more hours usually, but are just too lethargic to get up in the morning. So if you're sleeping less or if you're sleeping more, if there's a change of any kind. But also to note that if you have a change in appetite and no energy suddenly, or if you have a hard time actually quieting your mind, please get yourself checked out medically. Sometimes there are symptoms that can be diagnosed as depressive symptoms, but can also be caused by a medical condition. So make sure you've checked that out too. Pay attention also if you find that you're more irritable and things just seem to bother you in a way that they didn't before, both little and big things. And if you're experiencing more pains in your body, it's something people often overlook as a sign of depression. And also, if you are isolating and you're not getting together with people as often as you did before, or if you're feeling defeated, it's an important emotion. And that kind of hopeless feeling can sometimes trigger suicidal thoughts. So be aware also that there are some causes of depression that people don't take into consideration. And... There are some people who feel depressed when they have chronic pain or when they've experienced trauma or also if they're already experiencing a sleep disorder and are tremendously sleep deprived. Some people also have seasonal affective disorder. And now there are many people who suffer from depression caused by social media, either through seeing what looks like everyone else having a life that you want to have or through cyberbullying. There are a lot of people who don't share that they're depressed when they feel depressed because they don't know how to define it. And there are a lot of things that people do when they're depressed that keep them from getting help because sometimes they don't have the energy to deal with it or talk about it. And they shut down and just take it out, sometimes in hostile and angry ways, which can happen at times, which gets misdiagnosed as an anger management issue rather than depression. And sometimes people just turn inward and become quiet and sullen and antisocial, and then sometimes are labeled unfriendly or aloof. Some are labeled lazy if they just don't have the energy to take care of things they need to take care of or take care of themselves or even get out of bed. And then being labeled something that feels judgmental and insulting makes it even harder to feel hopeful that when you do share how you're feeling with someone that they'll respond the way you need and with understanding and without making you feel worse or making you feel shame. There are a lot of people who are also told to tough it out. And I find especially men are made to feel that they're not able to be open about their sadness and depression. 
And when you're feeling depressed, try not to add to it by sabotaging opportunities to feel better because that happens way too often. And if someone notices you're not doing well and wants to help out, don't be so quick to say no out of pride or not wanting to lean on them. Sometimes people do genuinely want to be there for you. And connect with others who have suffered this way to find out what's helped them because you are certainly not alone. It happens to a large part of the population. Spend time with people who are patient with you and sensitive towards you and your depression. And what I mean by patient is that depression, not unlike many other issues that people suffer with, is invisible and not so obvious, and you can seem fine, and it sometimes kind of surprises people that you're still not okay and you're still not over it. But it takes time to resolve itself, and sometimes can be lifelong and sometimes comes and goes and you want to surround yourself with people who understand to be patient and gentle and forgiving when you suddenly need to cancel plans or you just don't have the energy to smile in their presence and they don't take it personally and they don't make you feel guilty for it. And they also don't need to rush you along for you to feel better so that they can feel more comfortable around you. To those who love somebody and care about somebody who has depression, please try to remember that while they might not need to be told this outright, it is so important for you to understand how much credit people with depression deserve by just collecting the strength it takes sometimes to make it through the day. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.